Welcome back to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. They call it the Valley Forge of Connecticut, but it's really Putnam Park in Reading, named in honor of General Israel Putnam. He was one of the great generals on the Patriot side of the Revolutionary War. Well, just as General George Washington spent his brutal winter in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania with all of his troops before famously crossing the Delaware River, General Putnam had 3,000 troops camping with him in Reading. Just wait until you hear about the conditions that they faced, how it all happened, and the executions that had to be carried out to teach some lessons. Our guest today is Brent Colley, fifth-generation resident of Reading, local historian, and also currently the first selectman of Sharon, Connecticut. And now, Connecticut's Valley Forge, the harsh winter of 1778 at Reading's Putnam Park. Tucked away in the bucolic town of Reading, Connecticut is a must-see state park. Technically, in fact, it's the first state park ever created in Connecticut. Now, due to a technicality, that honor actually really belongs to Sherwood Island State Park in Westport, but that's only because what was created in Reading predated the actual creation of the formal state park system. Putnam Park is what's known as a memorial park. That is, it's not recreational. It was built for several reasons. Primarily to honor all the Revolutionary War soldiers, male and female, who camped there through unbelievably difficult conditions in the winter of 1778. It's also designed to be educational, and it's a solemn place. You can just walk through and reflect on what freedom means to you and what this country really is all about. Well, in earlier podcast episodes on Amazing Tales, we've spoken about that British raid on Danbury that destroyed it as a supply depot for Patriot forces. Maybe you heard that one. Well, Putnam Park was built in large part as a reaction to that to make sure it never happened again. George Washington himself said to build it. The 3,000 soldiers who were sent to Reading that winter were not only sent there to protect the inland locations, but also to cover an unbelievably wide geographic area stretching all the way from the eastern banks of the Hudson River in neighboring New York down to the coast of Long Island Sound. And that's a heavy load under any definition. Washington wanted also to kind of encircle New York City, which is where the British troops were headquartered, to kind of box them in and form a crescent of sorts around the city at different outposts located at strategic spots. Well, few people know this story as well as our guest today, Brent Colley, a Reading history expert who also happens to be the first selectman of Sharon. So my first question to him, why Reading? What was the thinking behind Reading? Do you have any idea why Reading? I think it was just a central location that would help to form that crescent defense. Obviously, just the year before, Danbury's uh, supply depots had been attacked and then also Long Island Sound. So that was a big part of the location. And I think it was a collaboration of everyone within the Army, because just before that, Washington had gathered everyone over in Pauling, where Patterson meets Pauling. If you're familiar with the ski hill, it was Big Birch, and now it's Thunder Ridge. So along that whole area was what what is known as Fredericksburg. That's where everyone basically gathered together to decide what was next. So what was the next plan? What was the next strategy? And where would we go? And so that happened roughly in September of 1778. 
So collaboratively, they talked about what and where they could be and what they could do. And obviously, Reading was pinpointed because of its location to roadways. Transportation is really what it comes down to, no matter what point in history you're talking about. So the highways and byways and also the location of the Danbury supplies and depots, and they would move the hospital up to that location. So I think it was just a perfect storm of availability, strategy, and location. And along Route 58, where the main Putnam Park is located, of course, that's the road that the British marched up when they raided on into Danbury. But there were three encampments, and I think this is interesting because all told, there were up to, I think, about 3,000 soldiers who wintered in Reading. And the three encampments, uh, the, the one that is today Putnam Park, had a New Hampshire and Canadian contingent. And the other two locations, one by the West Reading train station today and the other one in between them, essentially, all within a a three-mile line as the crow flies, the other two had Connecticut regiments in them. Uh, What else do we know about how these three were coordinated? It was, again, the ability to get to main roads. If you look at the West Reading location, water sources obviously were important to having an encampment there. But if you were to travel up Long Ridge and Brushy Hill, you come right into South Main Street in Danbury, you could be pretty close to where the depots were. And so that was a really strategic location for that. But also, you know, from that location, you can pretty much get to, you know, Myrie Brook, which is where the Danbury Fair Mall is, and over to New York you know, North and South Salem pretty quick. The middle encampment basically was the core. And that, again, was the Connecticut troops. So you had the Connecticut troops in West Reading and you had the Connecticut troops in the middle. You know, that was kind of the core. And then you had, like you said, the Canadian and New Hampshire troops, what is now Putnam Park. So Basically, if you want to just zoom out and look at it, so we had 12 regiments broken into three brigades, strategically placed in areas that could get to areas that we needed to get to quickly. But that location in Putnam Park was, again, to get quickly to Danbury, but also quickly to Long Island Sound. Now, let's talk about the conditions that these soldiers faced. I've been to Valley Forge, I'm sure you have too, and you can still see the actual places where they stayed and they lived, and you hear about how bitterly cold it was, and you realize that so many frostbite cases occurred. And then you think about, you know, really, Connecticut's Valley Forge in Reading, because this was not an easy winter, the 1778 to 79 winter, as, as I heard it. Let's start off talking about their accommodations, the lodging, and the huts. I guess there were 116 log huts in what is today Putnam Park. Could you explain what those huts were like as best we know? They basically arrived around late November into December. They were looking at a winter that was partially snow and partially rain or freezing rain. But what's really interesting is the fact that not only are they 
in these winter conditions, but they're also building within these winter conditions. So they had to build these huts and the huts were built to accommodate roughly 12 men or women each. You know, women were involved too. They're called camp followers. You know, they were able to enter Reading, Bethel, parts of Danbury and cut down trees, create huts to specific detail, a really short frame of time. You know, they arrive around like December 5th, by the 9th, they're talking about, you know, being in rough tents. And then by December 19th or so, they're in their huts. So they're working on these huts as soon as they get here and also surviving and creating a very structured city, really. They're creating their own city in an area that they are completely unfamiliar with. I find that to be incredible. You know, what they were able to create in that short period of time roughly three weeks, is pretty amazing. They're dealing with lack of food and supplies because the British had attacked Danbury. And so therefore they didn't have the supplies that they normally would have had. And then they're dealing with like rain and snow and cold. And But still they're building these huts and they're building them not just haphazardly, but very structured and very exact. And without a Black & Decker buzzsaw either, I might add, that winter, from the reports that I've read, was was very harsh. And not only the difficulties that you just described, but I also understand that there was inadequate food, inadequate clothing. And because the currency had devalued so badly, the paper money that they were getting paid in had devalued to the point where it was nearly worthless. And this led at one point, uh, particularly amongst the Connecticut regiments, because, uh, again, as I understand it, the Canadian and New Hampshire units were better financed than the Connecticut ones. The government in Hartford didn't give them the same amount of money. And it led to a mutiny situation where they were going to come in and make demands on Putnam. What happened there? Do you know that story? Yeah, so... Obviously, they've come and they've made their huts and they've settled in. There was really a lack of clothing, including shoes, which is, I wouldn't recommend it, but I've done it just to see. Walk outside your house in the snow or the freezing rain without any shoes on and see how long it takes you to thaw them out by your wood stove. It takes a long time. By the time that most of the huts and troops are within Reading, there's numerous snowstorms and very severe cold. So what you see around December 27th, just after Christmas, is a petition from the Connecticut soldiers to the acting governor, Jonathan Trumbull, that they're in severe need of help. And that includes clothing and shoes and blankets and everything that's going to keep you warm and safe and you know, getting food here was difficult, too, because between the snow and the rain and the mud, um, getting back and forth from Reading Bethel, Danbury to Danbury itself for those supplies is very difficult. And that would continue. So late December, you're seeing somewhat of a mutiny amongst the troops um, saying, like, enough is enough. You know, we're not getting paid for this. This isn't something that we want to continue to do. We don't want to leave, but we may have to leave. And that kind of filters not only 
locally, but you know, to the very top. And you'll see George Washington himself actually writes a letter to the deputy clother. It wasn't unknown. And obviously it was a problem. It just shows that these individuals were dealing with some really severe conditions. The fact that the war wore on and we did well, it's, that's why I think the people that made this Putnam Memorial Camp were really adamant about it being a memorial and not a recreational state park. They wanted to recognize that suffering, the Connecticut Yankee, you know, <laughs> toughness. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the mutiny, I mean, that was one thing. There was another problem that came up during the stay in Reading, and that was uh, desertion or traitor uh, ship, you know, heading over to the enemy and deserting the your own company. And there were two soldiers who ended up being executed for that offense. What can you tell us about those two uh, individuals and what happened to them? It was common. I mean, you're at a point in the revolution, it isn't really quite clear which side is going to win or lose. So you had individuals, not only within the armies, but also local individuals that were playing both sides. Obviously, we have 20-20 hindsight, so we know what happened. But, you know, if you're thinking, if you're in that moment in time, they were you know, obviously without food or, you know, you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. So you had individuals that were going back and forth between the lines and sharing information, you know, obtaining food, stealing food. And so, you know, basically you had, you know, a problem within the army that needed to be fixed or at least a, a addressed. So in the two individuals that came into play, you're looking at Edward Jones and John Smith. They were both in trouble for desertion. I think Edward Jones was also looking at possibly being a spy. So what Putnam was faced with was how do we fix this issue? What was decided was that we were going to make a grand example of the bad behavior. And we're going to show everyone who's here. I mean, we're looking at you know, 3,000 troops that need to understand that if they do these things, there's going to be consequences. So when they are court-martialed and tried, it's decided that Edward Jones is going to be hanged and that John Smith is going to be shot. Um, two gruesome ways of explaining to the troops that bad behavior will not be tolerated from this point forward. And it became a one-day event that everyone had to attend. That's where the troops learned that uh, bad behavior will no longer be tolerated. And this is how we're going to take care of it. And uh, I'm sure it wasn't fun for anyone involved. So let's shift gears and talk about what the state of Connecticut decided to do in the late 1800s. And this would mark the first time that the state of Connecticut decided to do something called forming a state park. I guess it started in 1887 with the legislature getting involved in checking things out. They formed a committee. And as you pointed out to me, actually a long time ago, when you look at the list of people at the park who are on the first committee of grounds, they're all from Reading, except for this guy, Isaac Bartram, who's from Sharon, where you are now the first selectman. 
you were able to sort of piece together how that happened, and I can't wait to hear that story. Isaac Bartram is from Reading. He he did move to Sharon. He became an extraordinary Mason, uh, not only just a Mason, he became the individual that would understand how to make the perfect blast furnace. He built Town Hall in Sharon, but he also built most of the blast furnace across the Northwest, which would play a large role in the Civil War. He's a pretty significant person who's kind of pretty well under the radar. He became a member of the General Assembly and Charles Todd is the individual that wrote the history of, of Reading. Charles Todd and Bartram went to school together. And Isaac contacted Charles Todd and said, you know, what you've written, you know, in the history of Reading, because he had just completed it around that same time frame, is, is, is fantastic. And the story of the encampments and the soldiers and the war and our involvement, like, really has inspired me. And I put together a bill that I'm going to actually present to Governor Lounsbury. And I'm going to try to get finances to create a, a park, some sort of a, a state park, so you would say. And what he instructed Charles Bertad to do is, is to start to talk to the individuals that owned the land that was where the encampments were. And then Charles Bertad did the work to get that done. It is passed and it is established. And then from that point forward, you see other purchases or donations made to create the park that we see today. But the, the initial 12 acres, which included, I believe, what was left of the remains of 45 huts, and that was through the conversation with Charles Bertot. But that's the thing that is really interesting about the park itself, is that you have the historical side, and that was very, very important to Charles Bertot. He was very adamant that he did not want this to be a recreational fun place. He wanted it to be a memorial of the people who had served our country through this park. That has been honored, you know, whether you look at the pavilion or the, the museum, which um, holds a lot of the relics that were found in the park. Um, it, it's played that role. And um, through the signage that's been added through the friends and neighbors of Putnam Park, we've played true to what Charles Bertod had envisioned. Now, in 1888, they build the uh, iconic monument that you can see from the entranceway as you go up into the park. And it's interesting because they built this 42-foot high monument. And to me, this kind of symbolizes what Todd's vision was, because the plaque on there really speaks to that vision. And it's, I think, so appropriately placed right at the at the entrance there so that you understand what you're about to see and, and what you're about to experience. The interesting thing is that he reached out to a friend of his, John Ward Dimson, who was director of the Metropolitan Museum of New York City's art divisions to help design a monument. And then I think some locals came to actually build that monument that you see. And those granite structures that make the base, I mean, you're looking at like five foot square and, and probably two tons each. And just the ball alone at the top is like two and a half feet. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's pretty significant. 
So it, it's it's really well done. Some people take a walk there. Some people just go there to think about their freedom and you know what this encampment really means because it's more than just that encampment. And that's where they did a really nice job of tying everything in at the visitor center because there was only t- got fifteen hundred people in Reading uh, when the troops showed up, and then there's. 3,000 troops that shows up. So imagine if you're like a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, or who matter, you can be a 50-year-old. Imagine what that was like. And that's the fun of the visitor centers because you can learn all about that. up this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. Just one last point on Putnam Park. Most of the soldiers who were there, 3,000 of them, were male. And in Reading, where there were 1,500 residents, some of those were women of marrying age. And yes, during the winter of 1778, 10 marriages occurred between them. I want to thank my guest for today's episode, Brent Colley, a fifth-generation Reading family member and the current first selectman of the town of Sharon. Next week on Amazing Tales CT, if you've never had the opportunity to be inside a one-room schoolhouse, well, you're just going to be absolutely amazed at the story of how schools started out in the earliest of colonial days and how many of them are still standing. We're going to be joined by the expert on one-room schoolhouses throughout New England. Well, if you like the show, tell somebody about it, turn them on to these stories so they can too appreciate fully the state in which we live. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Mm-hmm.